Ten months ago, we had two earthquakes. Over 8,000 of us died. And now, we are facing a freezing Himalayan winter in tin huts and under plastic tarps. Seven billion dollars of aid has not been distributed, while the government has wrangled for who gets control. The injustice is palpable, but for Nepal, it's par for the course. I am Hamilton Pevick, and this is American Immigrant, Episode 2, Relief Cast Edition. In this episode, we return to the earthquake aid relief that has been underway for 10 months. Visiting the village of Bampale and meeting the people who lived through the quake while their entire village was destroyed around them. I'll also be chatting with an earthquake-proofing engineering specialist currently working in Nepal. Then, I find myself singing Christian hymns in an unlikely place. This is Brian, telling me about his American immigrant perspective. What do you think of this like podcast idea? Think I'm going to find an audience? Uh, absolutely, uh, because I think there's a lot of people that are interested in places like Nepal. They travel here, or even for the people that can't travel here, or that only travel here for a short time, uh, to just get a flavor of what the country is really like. Uh, it allows people to kind of get a more in-depth perspective over a longer period of time, which I think gives a very unique uh, experience and understanding of a place. Nepal is so different than so many places, uh, like a lot of places. <laughs> I agree, you know? I agree. There's also things that, that are really surprising and intriguing about it, which are both, you know, very, very progressive and very, very backwards. You know, it's this weird mix of, of all this stuff going on here, uh, and especially in the context of a very unique situation, such as a disaster. Perhaps my podcast is about doing aid relief work and raising a child during a fuel crisis in a post-disaster country that is being purposefully destabilized by two nuclear powers on the brink of civil war, all while trying to run a yoga retreat center with my Nepali wife, who also happens to be a yogi shaman. On top of all that, my Nepali is limited and I mean limited. Uh, what's interesting about disasters is that uh, people come into this certain mode of doing things, which is just like get shit done mode, you know, like nothing else matters because this huge mm -hmm. uh, problem has occurred. From an uh, external perspective, you think, oh man, disaster, you know, like that's terrible. Um, but this other interesting part of it is that it, uh, it's like a catalyst for people and it, it really changes uh, a place uh, profoundly, actually, uh, because of this shared experience that all these people have, you know, within a city or within a country. It's really interesting because of what can come from it, you know, which are very, very positive things. Uh, and now we find ourselves in the current situation in Nepal, which is very unique, <laughs> right? Uh, because it's after one of those, but it's like going through it again. I mean, we, we could talk of other places, you know, this whole like disaster uh, context or, or thing going on, which is interesting. Uh, and it's like, because it's like a whole 
uh, culture. It's a it's a business too. I mean, it's this whole thing. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's this whole world that exists around disasters. But there's like this unique twist to it here in Nepal. <laughs> You know, what's the twist that it's Nepal? Uh, yeah, I, I think, yeah, actually, deep down, like, yes, and, and that it nothing's changed, uh, yeah, yeah, no, but but I mean, but but like, see, that's actually very profound, you know, like saying that, but but it's true, you know, because if you look at if you start to then understand like culture here and like r- true context of all that's going on kind of historically as well you know when, when you see it from that perspective it's like it's really interesting you know there's just really really interesting stuff going on American Immigrant Podcast Part 2 Mission to Bampale In my city, Pokhara, you don't hear much about the Nepal earthquakes anymore. The Indian border closure and resulting fuel crisis is grabbing all the attention. The people who are directly involved in recovery work, or people directly affected by the earthquakes, are the ones who still talk about it. I am one of those people. The world rallied to offer financial support to the earthquake victims. Unfortunately, much of the support did not get delivered due to corruption, disorganization, and other sad factors. Pledges of support are not money. About 20,000 US dollars was raised by my various communities. I was charged with making sure the support reached the people it was intended for. I had no experience in this kind of work, but it felt right to embrace. The earthquake sharpened my focus and clarified my purpose. My friends and I completed six different supply delivery missions. We helped approximately a thousand people. Experiencing a real disaster situation and meeting the survivors is life-changing. As stories of our success reach more people, the aid money kept flowing in, and the obligation to help continued. The relief work is becoming recovery and rebuilding work. Our first mission is to deliver winter clothes to the people before the cold sets in. I am sitting with Sachiko outside in the chilly winter night, about to begin the process. So, Sachiko, why don't you explain to me what this is? What this is? What you're holding. Now I'm holding the list of um, clothes which I brought from Japan. Because uh, when I was teaching yoga in Tokyo this time, we were collecting, we, we decided to collect some clothes for the area where the affected by earthquake. Because, yes, we thought they must be suffering for the winter time. Have you ever done earthquake aid relief before? No, never. I haven't. Even we had a big earthquake in Tokyo, but I haven't done it. Millions are still living in tents and shelters. The Himalayan winter is unforgiving. Our work has been slowed down by the fuel shortages. Even when we had or have petrol, delivering the supplies is 50% of the cost of doing the relief work. The conflict is a matter of resources versus time versus weather. 
How can we help as much as we can with what we have before it's too late? I am not intending to save this country, nor do I want to change it. I just want to make sure that the money that was given to help these people is spent responsibly and efficiently, to help the people in the best way we can. I feel a strange, contrasty apprehension about going back into doing this work. Maybe it was the residual anxiety of living through the emergency phase, but it also has to do with being responsible for the money. On the other hand, I feel confident that I know what I'm doing, and I can do it. I tell myself that if I act from my inner guidance, everything will be okay. Our first phase two recovery mission began in Japan. Sachiko Hirano organized a fundraiser for survivors. She is tall and attentive, slender and quiet. She is polite in a way that only Japanese can be. Sachiko rallied together Tokyo's yoga community into donating 80 kilos of winter clothes and money. 80 kilos of mostly down jackets. I'm no, I was not teaching yoga by myself. I was organizing this yoga with my friend who's running the shop in Tokyo and she also collected some money to sell some old books or put a um, donation box in her shop as well. Oh, what's the name of her shop? Okkarang. I'm not going to try and repeat that. <laughs> My brother-in-law, Sham, is essential to this mission. He manages Himalayan Yogini retreat, teaches yoga, and is one of the most easygoing men I have ever met. He is fit, yet homely, and his polished shoes give away his attention to detail. Their fear is now because after two or three months, there will be like a hurricane, you know, and they're still fearing of that. So um, my feelings is that I'm still, uh, um, uh, you know, how do you say, I'm still not happy to see, you know, the way their life is going on, you know. So I wasn't expecting they still have a temporary shelter living there, you know. So it's, it's I don't feel good, I mean, you know. I definitely want to continue, you know, to support uh, as a, as a, I mean, uh, I'm from any angle, you know, whatever it comes to me. Sham committed to doing the earthquake recovery work with me, and I am very, very grateful for his participation and relaxed nature. Sachiko, Sham, and myself discuss strategy for this mission. You know, that, that they don't, you know, they can trade amongst themselves or whatever, yeah, yeah, but yeah. I don't want them to be able to choose no, what they get, otherwise we may start idea. fights yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah and also just uh, let them know that, um, like, this is uh, like second hand yeah. and uh, you may not they may not be able to be satisfied what they yeah, have a, but uh, yeah. but the uh, priest don't like how to say oh yeah don't, yeah I don't, don't yeah, like, I don't. oh I wanted to have this or yeah. I wanted yeah. to have that Sham and I contact potential village recipients and figure out where these clothes will go one of the tough questions we have to address is who receives help, which is immediately followed by the question, who are we to judge? This carries a weighty emotional burden. Another big question is, 
Is it better to help as many people as possible a little, or help fewer people a lot? We contact Pabitra, a young mother and our liaison for Bampale village. We collect info on the number of people and their ages, then cross-reference that with the amount and sizes of the clothes. We have enough clothes for Bampale. The other potential village has twice the amount of people, ruling them out. We are standing in front of four very large boxes. In each box are bags of individually vacuum-sealed coats. We sort the clothes for redistribution by age and size. And every each each item so like, compressed. Uh huh. And then like, then label like that. This is very Japanese. <laughs> we are seeing boxes within boxes, packages within packages. <laughs> Very clearly labeled, which yes. is wonderful. This is how it is. Because I thought it's, uh, it's easy when, when we distribute. Like, oh, this one, I don't know. Oh, now she just found oh. one without a label. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, but like this. Large size, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. All right, so now begins the process of sorting and figuring out what goes and what stays. I think doing it in terms of men and women doesn't matter because mm. the, they won't care yes. about the cuts. Yes. But why don't we prioritize the best stuff first mm -hmm. and then see how far we get with the mm -hmm. numbers. Mm -hmm. And I think this 15 to 20 also include the... Yeah. Maybe all. Yeah, 15 yeah. to 20 year olds will be the same size yeah, as the adults. So maybe like so 55? 55 adults. Sham organizes a truck and driver, and we get a very good price considering the fuel shortages. Either uh, because the driver yeah. also is not, I mean, he's easy person, you know, yeah. because I've been, it's been a month that ah, I'm, okay. I'm connect with him, and then he must be also happy okay. because, you know, That's to do, a good idea. Uh, to so do we this. hire the Jeep and driver. Yeah, 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 he's driving for us. The driver knows the bompare or not? Yeah, he, he also, now he's also confirmed of that because he also had a difficulty how much he charged us. Mm -hmm. So he also did some inquiry and then finally he came up with, uh, eight, uh, yesterday he was saying 18,000 rupees, but I'm trying to convince her on 17,000. 17,000? 17, yeah, rupees. For in, including what? So including fuel? Yeah, fuel. Yeah. One thing that I am concerned about is, uh, oh, how do I say this? Do we, maybe we need one more Nepali speaker yeah. to be able to manage all these people. Yes. Because they're going to come quickly yeah. and they're going to line up and they're going to want to get all, they're not going to line up. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. It's going to be all like push, yeah. push, push, yeah. grab, grab, grab like yeah. this. We reach out to Sham's wife's cousin brother, Chimmy. Chimmy is a Tibetan Buddhist monk, a soft-spoken, quiet young man who wore plain clothes for the mission. You can translate for me? Uh, no, uh, he said he's free right now. 
So and because I call him, mm. and then he feel good to be participate in this uh, fun reading work. Yeah, he, he, uh, yeah, he's excited because uh, it's. Uh, I mean, um, he could go there and help the people, you know, and see the situation, you know, how because this is his first. Uh, or, I mean, really work, you know, so he's excited. At the same time, he's going to the area that has been affected more, you know. So he wants to interact with the people who are around, you know. So he's excited, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming with us. We're going to need your help. The plan is to have the truck pick us up at 8 a.m. at Himalayan Yogini Retreat. Drop the homegrown rice at the mill, go to the yoga hall in Lakeside, load the boxes, hit the road, and eat breakfast on the highway. Have a good staycation. Bye, dear. Love you. Behave well. Ganga, you go home. Go home, Ganga. In Lakeside, I realized the extra guy the driver brought along was coming with us. Too many people, I thought. I asked the guy to leave. I feel kind of bad, but the driver is easygoing about it. Was he, uh, was he upset that I kicked out his passenger? Uh, not really, not really, because he's supposed to inform me earlier, because I spoke to him, I mean, the day before, you know, that we'll have a, uh, I mean, we'll have a this much person and make sure no extra people. And you should have informed me last night that in case you, know, you want to bring. And did he tell you what his, uh, what his motivation was, like what his explanation was for having this person? Uh, having this person because he feel that, he feel alone, you know. I mean, in case if we are busy doing uh, the relief work and then he might be alone. And then the other hand, he has, uh, I mean, just for a friend, you know. And then in case uh, if he has enough time, so he wanted to move out of uh, our area and to get some uh, patrol. Oh, die. Uh, so is this your first time doing aid relief work? Yeah. Two times. Two times. Two times. Two times. Two times. Okay. And yeah. thank you very much for helping us and participating. Yeah, okay. Um, and I'm sorry about making your friend yeah. go away. Yeah. But we can also be your friend. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> same, same. <laughs> and uh, on the road, we stop for breakfast. Request for like a roping and Yeah, okay, okay. And you need anything now? Are you ready? No. You good? Yeah. So by ticket, sir. Sub ticket, Okay. Ramrocha. Jam jam. Yeah, jam. La la. He had also intended to go buy black market fuel while we do the distribution. I asked him not to do that either. Sachiko and I are sitting in the back of the truck. It's about. Uh, quarter to nine, and we're hitting the highway. The low dark clouds and mist make the chill bite at the hands. The wind makes sitting in the back even colder. We stopped three times before we found a place with suitable breakfast. I should have something more. <clears throat> You want, you want to go for Tarkari or Chana? Yeah, maybe I'll try the... Tarkari? Tarkari. Chachi, Tarkari. Mm, I want to see Tarkari first. Yeah. 
I feel a strange satisfaction delivering winter clothes in this cold weather. On entering the southern Gorka region, we are stopped and questioned by police at a check post. I quietly remind myself to be nice to authority figures first in negotiations before I become self-righteous. I smile and greet the curious officer in blue looking at our truck's contents. Namaste, <laughs> Now he's asking uh, from where we are and then for what, uh, what purpose. So um, I explained to them that we are from Pokhara and we are not related to any NGO, INGO. It's a personal uh, relief fund. And now the police officer, he's informing his senior officer. So, yeah, he's now confirming. Yeah. Is there anything we need to be worried about? Nothing. He's just clarifying. Yeah, we, are, we could move now. Okay. Sachiko covers her face, but I can tell the fatigue has set in. <laughs> I am a little bit classic. At the wide open landing strip, we stop and I ask for a protocol meeting to make sure we are all on the same page. Okay. So what I propose is a is a setup plan for yeah. when we arrive. We should lay the tarp down. Yes. Like okay, so where we're going to park yeah. is next to the road on the left. Yes. And then I think we can set up on the opposite side of the road up the hill just one level. Yes. And I think there's a clear enough area just there. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Sachiko, you look green. You want some water? She's feeling carsick. Uh, we'll hang out here a few minutes and let you get normal again, okay? Oh. <laughs> you want some water? You want some sugar? Oh, okay. You just do your do your pranayama. <laughs> um, so, we got to get sticks or something to make the fence. And then we've one we've labeled the boxes. So there should be one box that yes. you and I would begin with yeah. and she's, she's probably got, she'll probably use the bags yeah. to begin with. But once you guys finish with the babies, then you come and you start taking people out of the main line. Yeah. Yes, you. You, Bujo? Yeah, Bujo. Okay. I can remember where the turns are, I think, but Ours. better we ask at the intersections. Oh, yeah. So either you can sit front, I mean. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'll sit in the front. Yeah. But let's wait a few minutes here. Sachiko's yeah. not. You wanna lay down, Sachi? Mm. Maybe you just lay down. I don't like it. No, I, I don't think I can. Mm. Okay. 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 A little bit. Um. <laughs> Maybe so many fresh air, so many oxygen. Roxy puny. Tinpani lagyo. Tinpani lagyo. Tinpani Bampale is a small village of 90 people on a ridge of sal trees, orange groves, and rudraksha. The paved road bisects the village and only has one water tap. 
All the stone houses are destroyed or damaged. Now the people sleep in wood frame, tin roof shelters that are not adequate for the winter winds. The village started when four brothers escaped a local capitalist regime and homesteaded the forested ridge. They took care of the jungle and used it to build their homes. Some years later, another local regime tried to kick them out. But one brother argued that by escaping capitalism and looking after the forest, they earned their right to stay. The locals agreed, and the name reflects their right. Ban means forest, and Pale means security. Bampale, the keepers of the jungle. All the villages are extended from those four brothers. We arrive on time, and the Dalit villagers are all smiles expecting us. Namaste, namaste. Okay, so game, game plan meeting here. Yes. To mitigate the amount of plastic, because yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of plastic here, yeah. I think we unpack the item uh-huh. before we give it to them. Okay, that's good. Because otherwise we're just going to have plastic yeah. everywhere. Oh, sure, sure, sure. So we unpack it, we make sure it fits them, yeah. you know, uh-huh. make, like, guess the size. Okay. And then we'll just figure it out as we go. If you explain to them how to line up. You can please explain to them that we can only help one person at a time. Yeah. So, and we'll get through everybody. Yeah. But we can only help one person at a time. So, no. try not to push or, uh, you know, and be patient with us because yes. it'll be a process. We rope off an area, open the boxes, the villagers line up according to age. However, I notice after it's too late that a gender division occurs. The driver helps as well. He has a certain charm about him that commands attention. At one point, a young woman takes a gray down jacket, looks at it disapprovingly, then hands it to someone else and walks away, as if to say, I would never wear that. This one, this one. This is a good one. Nobody wants that color. (laughs) She didn't want it. Nobody likes the gray. The distribution goes quickly. The crowd slowly pushes in and eventually ignores the rope barrier completely. But it is not hectic or crazy. The atmosphere is almost festive. For a person who was raised in a Christmas tradition, (laughs) handing out wrapped gifts in December makes it hard not to think of Santa. The children are very happy about the small toys, new coats and shoes. One small girl got what she wanted, then saw the other child's item and wanted theirs instead. I can relate. I knew someone would get their feelings hurt, as pleasing everyone is nearly impossible. I never thought I would say this, but I'm glad it was just one small kid. It would have been a lot worse if an adult got angry or made problems over the jacket they received. Towards the end, only the very large and very unique items are left over. The villagers have a good laugh putting on the very oversized coats and swimming in them.
American Immigrant Podcast, Part 3, Village Stories. I walk up to an old lady's house, and a blind man offers me a handful of cannabis. Sham and I conduct some interviews. The following is a translation of the interview transcript, read by Mongol Gurung. The blind man's awareness seems stronger than he lets on. His eyes dart around under the sunken lids as he speaks. My name is Changa Bahadur Bajal, but people call me JB. Actually, I don't walk. I mean, I can't do anything. Your kind of people are helping by giving me 200 rupees or 400 rupees. Honestly speaking, I'm selling a little ganja. At the time of earthquake, I did not feel or care about anything. It was Saturday. We were returning from church after the prayers. I was just walking and felt something shaking. And I noticed that the tree and land are shaking. I tried to keep walking, but my legs are getting shaky and slippery. I couldn't walk. Then I realized it's earthquake. Uh, I stopped and I could hear the villagers screaming. I worried about the villagers because I could not help. What can a blind man do? I heard the houses falling, crying, screaming of children and women. I tried to calm them down and ask them to relax. I say, it's already happened and we can't do anything. Rather, we should stay in a safe place. Luckily, no human casualty happened. I saw their moral get better and I continued to ask them to be calm. A tiny, 20-something young woman reluctantly sits closer to the microphone. Her mother stands attentively nearby and listens, sometimes adding details here and there. Devika reads. I was at home and taking care of my father-in-law, who is handicapped. He needs someone to help him move around. I have to feed him and carry him places. He was sleeping on the balcony. At first I feel like land is moving and I look up. I see the ceiling is moving and the stone wall too. So I ran out to save my own life first. I was hiding myself from the house. I still don't know what was going on. My mother called me and said, Nani, it's an earthquake. Only then I knew it's an earthquake. Everyone gathered and we were all panicking. How and where do we make a safe place for father-in-law? Sham, while you were outside, what happened with your father-in-law? Bricks and stone were falling. His body was covered in dust and dirt. Then we rescued him by using bedsheets. We kept him in a safe place. We all gathered on the road because it was safe. Then aunt started to bite him and he started screaming. We decided to stay with him whatever situation occurred, whether we live or die. We moved him a little further away and he died. Sham, on the spot or after some time? The earthquake was on a Saturday. His body was shaken a lot and he died on Tuesday. Sham, is he suffering from any kind of disease besides being disabled? He had cancer. He was very weak. 
Because of shaking his body, he cried and screamed, scratching his own body for three days. He passed away on Tuesday. Beside you guys, no other NGO has supported us so far. However, one of the Christian church in Saddobato, Kathmandu, came to help. Our local pastor has a connection with them. They visited the damaged house and rebuilt part of it. It was not completed, but I don't have money, so it's remained unfinished. We only received bamboo and roofing. The group from Kathmandu asks about our family condition. I reply to them, we have five members. My husband is convicted of rape and he's in jail. So now because of father-in-law dead and my husband is in jail, now we are only three people. They took a picture of the broken house and our family. They physically help and labor to reconstruct the house. Sham, now what is the season for the work? What are you doing now? We already stored most of the harvest. We don't have so much land for farming. We are not strong enough to work for farming. So we are not working on the farm. Previously, my husband used to work as a farmer. We even used to farm by leasing other land. Since he is in jail now, we cannot take care of all the land. Even if my husband earns inside the jail, he doesn't support the family. Ama is a grandmother with some goats and an orange grove. She explains the situation a little further. Devika reads. He's from the neighboring Lamzung district. After he went to jail, we took her back home, gave her land for a house. They don't have their own property. I can't witness my daughter's suffering. It's difficult to witness and unfair that I'm having good life when my daughter's family is being neglected and suffering. When your group was here before, you told us we want to find a proper place and build a new house. Using that house as a sample, then we could build others too. But if the villagers start to act jealous or pulling each other's legs, we won't build a house. Ama explains that after our first delivery of mattresses and blankets, the villagers got into some arguments about who gets what. It got bad enough to have a village meeting where they agreed not to bicker. Ama emphasized that overall it was positive for the village. One other group did show up besides ours a Christian group who put a tin roof on one of her houses. To my surprise, Bampale residents did each receive about 150 US dollars from the Nepalese government. It was money from the National Earthquake Relief Fund. Devika reads. However, it's monsoon time and busy in the field, so we decided it would be better to build in winter when we will be more free to help. Now we have stored most of the harvest and we are free to help you rebuild. We got warm clothes and some kitchen materials. We got a tarp which helped avoid 
getting rainwater inside the house and we could sleep. Now winter has begun, so it's with gratitude we hope you rebuilt our house. Life is full of ups and downs as well as pain and sorrow. There is a Nepali proverb, don't panic in tragedy and don't get excited or overwhelmed in good time. Anyway, we wish to have an earthquake-proof house in cheap price. We don't expect a concrete or luxurious house. We just wish to have a warm house. We came to this world naked and we will live the same way. We don't want to fight each other, rather we walk hand in hand. That night, Sachiko and I camp in the orange grove while Sham, Jimmy and the driver sleep in the main part of the village to drink local Roxy and eat chicken. We are one of the villagers' house in the upper area of this village. And now, I don't know what's going on. Maybe they are going to pray. Like that this is their routine, I think, after dinner. I think they are going to pray by the Bible. I'm not sure. Your Bible? So these are Bibles in Nepali language, Nepali script. Oh, everybody has a Bible. Oh, Tanyaban. Oh, I can't read Nepali. <laughs> yeah, Nepali. Wow. Nepali, no, 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 Because when I was working in the project, one of my staff, a Nepali staff, he told me like um, so many Western people came to Nepal and then tried to spread the Christianity in Nepal and then. He he was not really happy with that, and he he told me they tried to change the, their religion or their mind, something like that, and he was really um, critical about this situation. I don't know the truth, but um, yeah. well, missionaries have a reputation. <laughs> As it turns out, we stay with a family of Christians, and we spend the night singing Christian hymns in Nepalese. Ama dances in her new down jacket, in the classic Nepali way, swinging her arms and stepping in rhythm to the music. She keeps repeating, Dere Kushilagyo, I am very happy. sleep to the sounds of a different jungle and wake up to the music of different birds. The next day we organize a group photo with their new coats on. I hear that our driver was quite a good entertainer and everyone got along very well. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I guess uh, you can explain 
at least express for me yes. that I'm very happy that they're getting along yeah. and that things seem to be okay. Yeah. And that um, that it's not only from us yeah. that there's many hundreds of people that contributed yeah. money and yeah. things to yeah. to oh. give. You know, from America, yeah. from Europe, yeah. from Japan, yeah. many people, yeah. and we're just the delivery yeah. people. Driving back along the highway, we are stopped again by a police check post. They point out that our rear license plate is too small. Conveniently, the painter is on hand to paint a larger one on. The whole process takes an hour. Back at the retreat center, we eat fresh rice for dinner. It was a successful mission. To my surprise, nothing went wrong. Or maybe it's better to say that nothing is wrong when I act from an inner place, even if it doesn't go the way I expect. In the future, we intend to rebuild some or all of the houses in Bampale. All the raw materials are there. But how do we rebuild better? And how do we begin sooner? I hear Brian Albert Planis playing guitar. I ask him if we could record some music for this podcast. His agreement is my great fortune. Not only is he an accomplished guitarist, he is also an engineer who specializes in earthquake proofing and building techniques. I'm Brian. Uh, I work here in Kathmandu. You live in Kathmandu? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Kathmandu don't, that's what yeah. I say. It's pretty gnarly, man. It's a nice uh, retreat out here. How do, how have you experienced the earthquake? Uh, so I arrived to Kathmandu four days after the second earthquake. Uh, and I've basically worked as an engineer uh, doing assessments of buildings, uh, you know, retrofits, uh, vulnerability assessments, all sorts of things for all sorts of buildings. Um, like right after the earthquake, you know, so it was pretty intense for a while. Um, traveled throughout the country to look at, you know, kind of what was going on, uh, look at uh, how schools fared, how houses fared, um, all sorts of, you know, different types of buildings. Uh, and then now kind of getting into how they're being rebuilt, um, the design, the uh, supervision of it, things like that. So wow, yeah, that's full on. <laughs> that's yeah. really um, well done. Good job. Oh. They're surely not paying you enough. <laughs> <laughs> it's fascinating work, and and uh, I'll have to pick your brain about that in particular. So yeah, you really immersed yourself in the earthquake, mm -hmm. in a way, and the culture of it. And you've had to probably deal with some crazy Nepali bullshit, political, bureaucratic. I mean, you probably experienced it on every level. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah, basically. <laughs> damn, well, it's good that the composer of this podcast theme music is also, you know, directly affected by the content of the these episodes yeah. and, and the podcast itself because it will be about earthquake relief and shit, I should just follow you around for an episode <laughs> or two. Damn. Yeah. I catch up with Brian a few weeks later. Good morning. Hello, Brian. How's it going? Good, my man. How you doing? Describe to me 
the simple modifications that I can do if I want to build safer using the rubble? So the, the main thing uh, that you have to think about is walls falling away, like out of plane, which means, you know, usually you, you can kind of see the way that walls fall down and mm-hmm. we have to hold them back from doing so. Basically, to, to build back safer with rubble, you have to make sure everything is connected well and that everything is kind of being tied back from falling away, from falling, right? So how do you actually do that? Uh, a very common type of fix or solution that helps uh, prevent these walls from falling, it doesn't make it perfect, but it makes it a lot better, is uh, adding bands, right? These horizontal layers in the walls uh, at the corners of which are kind of tied and overlapping to the to the other corner, to the other side, right? So we add these either in concrete or wood horizontal bands and that help tie the wall together. Uh, as well as stones that uh, go from the inside of a wall to the outside of a wall to help tie the two layers together. And uh, and basically just kind of tie everything together. Because if you look at how a lot of these walls fail, that's what we're trying to mitigate against when we build it up again with rubble. I mean, we're actually doing this on a few different projects, trying to design how to actually do this. And there's books out there and there's, um, even the solutions that you know the NGOs and the governments are coming out with, um, that, that that's like the standard practice of how to do it well. Uh, and the other thing that really comes down to it a lot is also workmanship. Mm. Workmanship is a, like a plays a huge role in uh, in how much a building is is going to get damaged. Having uh, a much more robust roofing system where everything is actually very well tied together um, and the connection of the roof system to the wall is actually kind of strong. If you were in the middle of the wall and you're trying to push it away, um, it would be stopped by the roof as well. Not only the strength of the wall itself, but the roof is actually holding it back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw so many buildings uh, that had collapsed and where the roofs were just kind of resting on top of the walls like there almost was no connection yeah 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 exactly so so that's like that's one really key place um that can do do a lot to to, to help the safety of the building uh, a, a lot of this engineering of buildings type of stuff is actually uh it's a lot simpler than people think you just have to think of it and 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 look at it in in uh, in a visual way you know, like you, you think about you're standing in the middle of the wall, you're trying to push it away. What's going to stop it physically from doing, you know, from falling back, you know, as you're pushing on it? Because that's what an earthquake does. It makes things move horizontally, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can't tell you, you know, how much I appreciate your, uh, what you're, how you're helping me. So thank you so much. Yeah, no worries, man. My pleasure. Definitely. This is why the details are so important. I want to build earthbag houses because it's fast, cheap, and safe. The one major drawback is that it requires 100% supervision, which I can't give right now, 
which means the project has to wait until I can be there full time. But with the methods that Brian has shown me, we can begin construction with reused materials, rebuild safer houses with super simple modifications that don't require full-time supervision. We can rebuild a whole village probably and start right away. Well, almost right away. This answers the question I posed at the start of the show. Is it better to help as many people as possible a little or help fewer people a lot? I want to help the people of Bampale village a lot. I know that protecting the delicate social fabric of a community is important, but very hard to do. When only one family receives help in a community, that family can be ostracized. With Bampale village, we have an opportunity to help an entire community. There is less risk of causing lasting social damage. This kind of success cannot be measured in dollars or words or anything abstract. It is measured in cozy living rooms, while the family sits around the fire and remembers the time when the earthquake hit. Thank you for listening. This episode was written and produced by me, Hamilton Pevick, co-produced by the amazing Nisha Bremner, and the Storyteller Project, www.storytellerproductions.net. Music for this episode was written by Brian Albert Planis and Alex Formosa. You can check out Alex's site, www.alexformosa.com. That's F-O-R-M-O-S-A. A very special thanks to Sachiko Hirano, Sham Gurung, Chimidorje, Mangal Gurung, Devika Gurung, and everyone who has contributed to the earthquake relief effort. You are making the world a better place to live. Next time on American Immigrant, natural birth in a country that is addicted to cesareans. I would love to hear your comments or questions. Or if you want to donate to the relief effort, email us at americanimmigrantpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, what's it like to rebuild an entire village using the rubble? Stay tuned and find out. Until then, tell someone you love them.